Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Because of my remaining prejudices, I'm still sometimes surprised, and thankfully so, when I run into those who volunteered for the military and war and who are now perhaps among our greatest witnesses and workers for peace. And we have one of them with us today for Spirit in Action. Leah Bolger served 20 years in the U.S. Navy. She got her master's degree from the Naval War College in National Security and Strategic Affairs, and she left active duty in 2000 with the rank of commander. She recently served as the president of the National Veterans for Peace Organization, is part of the Green Shadow Cabinet, has been active with Code Pink, and is very much involved currently in the World Beyond War movement. So, we'll talk about this work and much more as Leah Bolger joins us now by phone from Corvallis, Oregon. Welcome, Leah, to Spirit in Action. Well, I'm pleased that you invited me, and it's my pleasure to be with you. I'm excited to have you here today, especially following up on my visit a couple weeks ago with your former vice president of the National Veterans for Peace, Math Southworth. Really an impressive and still young voice for peace. How did you connect with Matt? Well, I knew of his work. He works for the Friends Committee National Legislation right up there on Capitol Hill. I am one of the people in Veterans for Peace who kind of believes in the inside-outside strategy and that you need to work inside with the lawmakers and the decision makers and the policymakers, but also outside putting pressure on those people with demonstrations and letter writing and, and that kind of thing. So I knew of Matt's work as a lobbyist, and also he was a, a recent uh, veteran. And also Veterans for Peace was, is always looking for younger veterans to join our organization to be the future of the organization. So he just had a lot of qualifications that any, and he's a natural leader. He's very articulate. He can certainly express the message of peace. So it was just a real easy choice to make to try to get him on the board. Is getting ready to leave the board now. He's received a promotion at the Friends Committee on National Legislation. So his time on the board is, is up, but he's still deeply in the trenches of peace activism and following the Quaker tradition. You served in the U.S. Navy for 20 years, starting in 1980, with specialties in national security and strategic affairs. And I can hardly think of a more impressive and industrious worker for peace. And for some people, that seems like a strange transition. Help us understand your journey and what led you to make a lifetime career in the military. 
It's, it's kind of a, a long answer, and I'll, I'll try to make it succinct. But you have to kind of go back to the very beginning of why I joined the military in the first place. And it was not out of a sense of, I want to go protect this country, or I want to fight terrorists, or I want to be a patriot. Or frankly, it was very simply, I needed a job. And I grew up in a a very small town of about 13,000 people. And I had lived there since I was in high school. And then I went to college in the same small town. And I needed a job, and which is why so many young people join the military. They join because they need the opportunity for a career. And they don't have money for college. Or they grew up in some kind of environment where college isn't really an option. I just met a young man this weekend from Chicago. He told me that he wants to be an archaeologist, but there's absolutely no way that he sees that he can go to college to be an archaeologist. So those are the kind of people, uh, young people that live in rural areas that don't have a lot of money in their school districts to have advanced placement programs or uh, pre-college courses, and people who live in underserved neighborhoods those are the kind of people that the military preys on. You will not find very many people joining the military who have the opportunity to go to college or have some other viable career opportunity available for them. When you look back at that and you see why I joined the military, it wasn't out of any kind of political ideology. It was for the job. And so I stayed in the job for 20 years, and I was an officer because I had my degree before I joined, but my degree's in fine art, so it wasn't where I could go get a job in commercial art or teaching or or something like that. I, I really had not a marketable degree. So I stayed in. To me, it was an interesting job. Every couple of years, I changed jobs, locations. I had four overseas tours in Iceland, Bermuda, Japan, and Tunisia. I was sent to language school to learn French before I went to Tunisia. I was sent to graduate school. I was a military fellow at MIT for a year. So I had a wonderful variety of experiences for my 20 years, but I was never placed in the position of what I call a a crisis of conscience type of decision where I had to aim a gun at somebody or be a part of actual killing or combat or that kind of thing. When I joined in 1980, women could not serve in, in a combat position. So my jobs were basically desk jobs. All officers are primarily managers of people and assets or a combination of those two things. And so even though some of the work that I did was operational, I did some anti-submarine warfare work, it wasn't where I was in the trenches with a gun fearing for my life or having to make the, like I said, the crisis of conscience choice to shoot at somebody. So it was fairly easy for me to go through 20 years of active duty service without really thinking about the big picture, the military machine that I was supporting and the imperialist, militaristic aggressiveness of our country's foreign policy. And so also, you know, when I joined in 1980, we were in the middle of the Cold War. It wasn't as if I were joining something that we were at war, what I would consider to be an illegal or immoral war like I do Afghanistan or Iraq. So it wasn't, it didn't seem all that contradictory to my own uh, political beliefs at that time. 
You know, I think throughout my 20 years, I definitely thought of myself kind of as an odd man out. I, I didn't always agree with my peers on politics. I can remember, well, at the War College, when I was a student at the Naval War College, I wrote papers on the importance of the United Nations, and I wrote a paper on conflict termination. You know, I was more left-leaning, I think, than my peers so I never really fit into the mold of what you think of as a as a career military person. I stayed in because of the economic benefit to myself. And then I didn't really get involved actively until I got out of the military in 2000. That's another story. I don't know if you want me to go into that about how I became an activist, but I'll be happy to share that too if, you, if you'd like to hear that story. I do, of course, want to hear about that. But I'd like to make sure you add to the discussion how the fact that you exited the military in 2000 dovetails with your journey. Therefore, you left the year before the attack in the Twin Towers and before we invaded Afghanistan and Iraq. Given your current passion for peace, do you think you would have been able to go along with the invasions as part of the military machinery? Well, you know, I'd like to think that I would have been principled enough to say I can no longer support this. A woman who I consider my mentor, uh, Colonel Ann Wright, many of your listeners probably know of her work, but she was in the Army for 19 years, and then she joined the Diplomatic Corps, and she was a Foreign Service officer for a number of years. And she resigned her position at an embassy right before we invaded Iraq. She did so out of print. She said, I can no longer support the policy of my country as an, as an ambassador, and I have to resign out of principle. So, you know, I would like to think that I would have done that. It's, it's hard to, to say, honestly, what I would have done. I had 20 years in, in the year 2000, and I was eligible for retirement benefits. It's easy to say, and it's easy to encourage active duty people to resist or to get out or to confront the military system, it's easy to encourage that and to say, yes, that's the right thing to do. But it's very difficult when you consider that for a lot of people in the military, I told you, you know, they join for economic reasons. So, so they join when they're 18 and then, you know, in a few years they meet somebody, they get married and now they have children and they need the health care benefits, they need the insurance, they need the, the housing benefits, they need the salary. It's very hard to talk somebody into or say the right thing to do is to get out when somebody has 10, 11, 15 years in, and they're halfway or three quarters of the way to retirement and benefits. So I'm glad I didn't have to make that decision. I would like to think that I would have done something principled. But in all honesty, I can't say that, you know, if we, we had uh, invaded Iraq before I had my 20 years in, would I have gotten out? I don't know. I don't think I came about to my principled position that I have now for a few years after I got out. And I started learning more about our aggressive policies. And you know, frankly, the whole time I was in the military, uh, you know, and I was on active duty service when we invaded Iraq for the first time in 1991, but I was stationed in Japan at that time. And I remember watching the shock and awe, as it was described, on Japanese television and completely removed from what was happening. I didn't feel like I was a part of that. So, I think it's easy to take a principled stand once you're removed from it and to say, oh, yeah, this is what you should do. But 
I do think that had I been in the position, you know, like I said, women couldn't be in combat. So I would never be in a position where I had to actually shoot somebody or drop bombs on somebody. I don't think I would have been able to do that had I been ordered to do so. But frankly, I was never pushed to that decision. So it's anyway, I'm trying to be honest here. I'm still not sure I understand what took you from a dutiful soldier to a committed peace activist. Was it gradual or were there clear turning points? Well, I actually had a pivotal moment in my life where I can pinpoint exactly when I got the kick in the gut that I needed or the kick in the pants or whatever. And it was through an exhibit. The American Friends Service Committee, the Quaker group, had an exhibit uh, called Eyes Wide Open. And I bet many of your listeners have seen this exhibit, but it's uh, it consists of rows and rows of military army boots lined up as if the people were in a formation or as if they were tombstones at Arlington Cemetery, very precisely lined up in rows. And attached to those boots were dog tags and sometimes mementos, flowers or pictures or teddy bears or different things. There's something about seeing those boots which humanized the cost of war for me. And then in addition to the military, American military boots, there were also piles of civilian shoes to represent the Iraqis that had been killed, children's sandals and and men's shoes and, and women's flats. And it just, I had a visceral reaction to that exhibit. And I was crying. I was just... It was something of a real wake-up call to me, and I had a, a reaction to it that really moved me from being just somebody who said they were against war, who said they were against the Iraq war, and to a moment where I said, I have to become active, I have to do something about this. And that was the start of my activist career, and that was about 2005, I believe, that I saw that exhibit. That moment really pushed me into where I am today. And I still have a lot to learn about the truth of American imperialism, American military aggression. Because the truth is that we were doing all kinds of militarily aggressive and illegal things in South America, Central America, all the time I was on active duty, but I knew nothing about it, or I, I was oblivious to it. And certainly it wasn't focused on in American media or you know, I'm a product of public education. I didn't learn about these things in my schooling. So I think I'm typical of a lot of Americans who are only exposed to what they see on American television, American newspapers, and are not especially inquisitive or curious or thoughtful about finding out the truth because it, it doesn't really affect them. You know, and now that I know that the media, the American media, is a huge corporate entity that is has deep ties with the American government, and that many companies are weapons manufacturers are actually owned by the same companies that own the media, it's become more obvious to me that you have to work very hard to know the truth as an American, because your, your government and the American media is not going to tell you the truth. And, and that's why it's so important for people like you, independent media folks, to help reveal the truth and, and have interviews with people that can speak from a, an inside view and are not going to be talking about the same things that you're going to see on uh, corporate-sponsored media. 
I want to mention, Leah, that I started producing Spirit in Action back in 2005, and one of the first few programs I did was on the Eyes Wide Open exhibit, which I visited at a national Quaker gathering I go to each year. So it feels like a circle being completed to hear how that exhibit was so influential for you. That's way cool. The thing that led me to track you down and contact you included an impassioned talk you gave at a session of the Congressional Committee, which got you hauled out the door, but especially because I saw that you were the first female president of the National Vets for Peace organization. Obviously, somewhere along the way, you got connected up with them. Were you a longtime member? Yes, actually, I was a dues-paying member of Veterans for Peace, but I was an at-large member. I didn't belong to any chapter because there was no chapter near me. And I was wearing my Veterans for Peace t-shirt at a peace event over in Albany, Oregon. I live about 12 miles away in Corvallis. And I met somebody there from the Portland, Oregon chapter of the Veterans for Peace, which at the time was the only chapter in Oregon, only VFP chapter in Oregon. And he noticed my shirt and he said, you know, you should start a chapter where you live. And so I, I did. Um, I started a chapter. It was chapter 132 in Corvallis. I became the the president of the chapter for uh, three years. I was the president. And then I ran for the national board of Veterans for Peace. And I became the the national vice president for three years. And then I was reelected to the board. And I was served as the national president in 2012. And so it's just sort of grown from that. And then different actions I've participated in and civil disobedience and things that drawn some media attention and and then doing interviews and speaking. I do a lot of uh, public speaking and it just sort of grows. And the more you get involved, the more you get involved, kind of snowballs. So yeah, now I'm involved in a number of projects. I'm still involved with Veterans for Peace, although I'm no longer on the national board. I'm the chair of a working group for Veterans for Peace about uh, drones opposing both weaponized drones that are responsible for killing thousands of innocent people in Yemen and Pakistan, Afghanistan, Somalia. But also, uh, we're very concerned about surveillance drones that are being used to violate, well, they're not being used intentionally to violate uh, civil liberties, but they're certainly violating our First Amendment and our Fourth Amendment rights by their use. The Drones Working Group sees both of these kinds of drones as problematic, and we're working very hard to oppose them. I got really involved with the drones activism when I was part of a delegation that went to Pakistan last October. It was organized by Code Pink, which I really have the greatest admiration for that organization. They're they're currently, in fact, many members of Code Pink are meeting in Switzerland right now with lots of international women and women's groups to talk about women's role in ending war in Syria and that, you know, so many decisions are made about war and peace that don't consider women's voices, women's opinions, or women's needs. Anyway, Code Pink is a great organization, and I was part of this delegation that met firsthand with the victims of combat drone strikes in uh, Pakistan. It was quite eye-opening for me to see the devastation that these drones were causing and the complete indifference of the American government to my government as to the damage they were causing. And not just indifference, but denial of responsibility for these deaths and the, and the, the harm it was doing, not just physically and killing people, but psychologically and having this 24-hour surveillance system and people not knowing when a drone was going to strike and 
it's just caused so much damage to the people who are under, you know, in their sites, uh, those drone sites. We could do a whole hour talking about drones, but that's uh, one issue I've been working on. And then out of the drones issue came another project I'm working on, which I hope some of your listeners will want to participate in, and that's the Drones Quilt Project. I got an email about some British women who were making quilt blocks to use as a kind of a visual petition to take to Parliament in uh, England. Each of the quilt blocks has the name of a victim of weaponized drones on it. So they were not only memorializing those people who had been killed, but then using these blocks as a as kind of a visual petition. And so I sent them a, a quilt block with a name on it. And then I got the idea that, you know, I knew so many anti-drones activists in the U.S. I thought we have plenty of people that could make our own quilts. And so I started the project here in the U.S. And now we have put together four quilts. We're working on the fifth one right now. We also, accompanying the quilts, are some informational panels, I call them, that has some factual information about the harm that the drones are causing and educating people a little bit about drones. And then the third component of the exhibit is a two-page handout about anti-drones resources, organizations, and websites, and tools that you can use. And then the other side of the handout is about 20 ideas, take action ideas that individuals can do to work to oppose drones. And my hope is that the Drone Quilt Project exhibit will tour around the country and become something like the Eyes Wide Open exhibit. The, the Drones Project exhibit right now, it has been displayed in about six or eight cities. Right now it's in a public library in Arlington, Virginia. Next month, it's going to be going to Vassar College in upstate New York. I'm hopeful that eventually I will have enough quilts and enough information panels that it can be traveling around the world, just as the Eyes Wide Open exhibit did in several places at once, and hopefully in other countries even, to kind of make people aware of the human cost of the drones through these names and kind of personalizing the deaths instead of saying so many thousand people have been killed. But when you see the name of the person, that will maybe bring about something of a, the kind of reaction that I felt when I saw those boots. So if people will go to the, there's a website for the Drones Quilt Project. It's dronesquiltproject.wordpress.com. And on that website are instructions on how to make a quilt block. You don't have to be talented in sewing or quilting or anything. You can paint the name on. You can do all kinds of things. And then so I need people to make quilt blocks. And I also need people to volunteer to host the exhibit in their town. That would be really great if I could have people just lined up back to back to back to send the the quilts to. And so we can really educate the public about that. Thanks for helping me promote the, the Drones Quilt Project. And just a reminder to all our listeners, you can find a link to the Drones Quilt Project at wordpress.com. Or you can just follow the link I have on nordenspiritradio.org. Just look for the Spirit in Action interview with Leah Bolger. And check out the bonus excerpts with her that we can't fit into this broadcast. There's riches in them, there hills. But you were saying, Leah, that you made this startling transition from full-time Navy commander to, as far as I can see, a full-time and beyond peace activist. I mean, 
you seem to be an incredible ball of energy with what with your work for Vets for Peace, Code Pink, the Drones Working Group, the Green Shadow Cabinet, all of your speaking, the World Beyond War Project. And I'm just scratching the surface. It looks to me like you retired only to work even harder and more for peace. Yeah, that's ironic, isn't it? You know, and I and I love to tell people that because I spent 20 years in the military, I can now be a full-time volunteer peace activist because I can afford to to live off my my military pension. So, you know, I love the irony in that. And when I was at MIT, I was supposed to be the the military uh, or the the Navy's expert. MIT has military fellows in all four branches of the service, and we were supposed to be the brain trust of our respective services. But I think I got a lot more out of that fellowship than than I gave uh, because I was allowed to audit classes at MIT and Harvard and Tufts and and in any of the Boston area schools, and so. I just audited all kinds of classes like comparative religion and and economics and women's studies. And it was just wonderful to, you know, I'd I'd hear somebody speak at Harvard in the morning and somebody else at MIT at night. And Cornell West was still teaching at Harvard at the time and, you know, talking to him. It was just an incredible experience for me. But it was just pretty overwhelming, all all of the knowledge and and. Oh, just to be in that kind of academic intellectual environment where you could just absorb everything. So I don't know if the folks at the strategic studies program at MIT thought I was a very good fellow, but I certainly enjoyed my time there. <laughs> I got a lot out of it. Yeah. And that was one of the things too, why, like I said, it was, there was no reason for me really to get out of the military. I mean, they, they sent me to language school. I was traveling. I went all over the world traveling and, and my master's degree. And, and, you know, I got a lot out of it personally that, and I pursued some other career, I don't know what would have happened. I want to step back to your comments about drones. And I've had other vets talking about drones, including Matt Southworth just a couple weeks ago and Elliot Adams a few years ago. Still, I have to wonder on the perspective you and they must have as soldiers. I mean, any soldier on the field knows that if a drone weren't out there doing the surveillance and attacks, that it would mean risking a soldier. And while people in the U.S. can turn a blind eye to non-American civilian casualties, the U.S. public is pretty squeamish about the deaths of our men and women. So there must be some kind of tension there between the downside of risking foreign civilians as collateral damage and risking the lives of your compatriots in the military service. No, for me, this is really an easy issue. You know, it really goes back to the whole just war principle. And is it really possible to take a life to save a life? And can we justify drones because they save American lives the same way could we justify Hiroshima because it supposedly saved lives? I don't think there's any way you can justify the killing of people to save other people. That doesn't make sense to me at all. It's not an either or. It's either an American or it's a Pakistani. It doesn't have to be either one. And the American drones and the American soldiers should both be in back home and, and, and they shouldn't be fighting and killing people of, of other nations who've done nothing to harm this country. So, it, you know, no, it, this, is not a, this is not a moral conundrum for me at, at all. 
I want to remind our listeners that you're tuned in to an interview with recent Vets for Peace National President Leah Bolger for Spirit in Action. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and this is a Northern Spirit Radio production on the web at northernspiritradio.org. With more than eight and a half years of programs available for your free listening and download. Links to and info on our guests, there are comments also, and please add your own when you visit. It's up to you to make this two-way communication. We're doing our part. Your comments will help us know your mind, your suggestions, your feedback. There's also a button and a mailing address for those who care to donate. This is full-time work, and your donation makes it possible. But even more... Remember to donate your time and money to your local community radio station, an invaluable, invaluable resource of music and news that you get nowhere else, sadly. So remember to help them out and help Northern Spirit Radio if you can. Today's Spirit in Action guest is Leah Bolger. After 20 years in the Navy, rising to commander, she left the military in 2000 and is now an incredibly hardworking activist with so many projects and organizations. Vets for Peace, as we've discussed. But I want to zero in on another one, something that I understand is front and center for you currently, Leah. The website is worldbeyondwar.org. It's the World Beyond War Project. This site is filled with analysis and riches, so much to think about, so deep to go. There's no way, Leah, that we can deal reasonably with even a fraction of the content there, but I do want to follow one topic, and it's follow-up to what we've already been talking about. One area of discussion on the World Beyond War website is about the immorality of war. And just to be clear where I'm coming from, I'm Quaker, and not surprisingly, I'm even a pacifist, so I don't support killing of civilians or even of soldiers, but I do understand the temptation, the motivation of saying, I have to do this to protect my friends, my countrymen and women, the people from my state, my city, especially my family. I understand that. If it came down to it, my son's life seems more important to me than the life of another 27-year-old man from the other side. Like in the movie Sophie's Choice, many people perceive it as a choice of us versus them, a need to make your best choice among horrible options. And a lot of people will say that the life of an American is more important than a life of some foreign person we don't know my son or daughter or wife being more important than someone else's son, daughter, wife. How do you talk about that moral tension? Well, I think, you know, that's that's really an important question. But, but the way you frame it, though, is if it's an either or. It doesn't have to be the life of your wife versus the life of a Pakistani wife. Why does anybody have to be killed? And that's what we're saying in World Beyond War. We're saying that War is, you know, to quote Edwin Starr, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. There's no good that comes from war. It cannot solve problems. It's only a temporary stopgap till the next war happens. And the harm that it does greatly exceeds any amount of what you could claim to be positive results. It's just like, you know, I was saying before about Hiroshima. How in the world can you justify killing hundreds of thousands of people who've done nothing. It doesn't make any sense. So 
we're saying that in World Beyond War, and sometimes I get the question of, well, why are you creating another peace group? We have so many peace groups out there. Well, you know, in Veterans for Peace, we have working groups. We have a group on drones. We have a group on depleted uranium. We, you know, we have different aspects of war that are symptoms of war or, or results of war. But the real problem is that we need to abolish war itself. War is the problem. And it's not, you know, if we just got rid of the F-35 or if we just got rid of drones, everything would be okay. The idea for World Beyond War came from a peace activist, uh, David Swanson, who's written several books, and uh, David Hartsaw, a renowned peace activist. And they said, you know, it's not about we need to stop uh, an attack on Iran. Of course, we need to stop an attack on Iran. But we need to make the idea of war so abhorrent that, you know, people wouldn't even consider attacking another country. And David, in his book, he's written several books, but, uh, but the most recent book, uh, it's called On Ending War, talks about, you know, it was not that long ago that in the United States, we had slavery and people were property and blacks could not own property. Women could not own property. Blacks were property. But today, and it was not that long ago that our country believed that, and it was accepted, normal practice to have slaves. And today, the idea of human slavery is absolutely abhorrent. We would never consider that to be acceptable today. So David and David think that we need to come to a point where war can never be considered as an acceptable option. Because it, the vast amount of harm it causes is never justified. And I'm sure a lot of people listening may well say that's fine on a theoretical plane, but in reality, they doubt that we could actually make that incredible leap from war as accepted norm to near universal abhorrence of war. On the worldbeyondwar.org website, you mentioned an example that I had neglected to notice previously, dueling that exemplifies exactly that kind of amazing progress, which is possible. Right. That's another example that David uses in his book is, is about uh, dueling. So the point is, yes, things that seemed absolutely normal or impossible to change have changed over the years. And in fact, in a relatively short amount of time. Then the other point that David Swanson makes, and he has another book called When the World Outlawed War, and in it, he talks about the Kellogg-Briand Pact. Kellogg was an American senator, I believe, from Wisconsin, and I may get that wrong, but, but he was the American, and Briand was a French statesman. And together, they wrote the Kellogg-Briand Pact, which was a treaty that said that war is outlawed, that all the nations who signed on to this pact would promise not to resort to war to solve their differences. And so the world actually came to this agreement following World War I. The problem with the Calabrian Pact was that there was no enforcement mechanism built into it. And so when World War II came along, the Calabrian Pact kind of got dismissed. And then ever since World War II, we've been, you know, just sort of in a pe perpetual state of war of, of one level or another. So... David's thought is that, well, we did it once. Why can't we do it again? And so the point of World Beyond War is to engage not just Americans and American peace groups, but international groups to put our minds together and think about strategies that we can use to nonviolently 
bring about the change that we want to see. And it's not just peace groups that we're recruiting. We are we're saying it's going to take everybody. So World Beyond War is actively seeking, outreaching to academic groups, uh, well, philanthropists and business people, corporate people, environmentalists, faith-based groups, all kinds of people who can agree that the world would be a better place if we didn't solve our differences by dueling or by wars, which are, are something like a duel except on, a, on nation against nation. So with people who have no grievance against each other, they're just part of the system. And in many cases, they're part of the system because of economic reasons, because they have no alternative. And so this is things that we need to change. Uh, you know, people need to be able to have good jobs that are, are not you know, part of the war machine. There's so many problems that are bound up in wars and militarism. Environment, you know, the wars are, are the biggest contributor to environmental problems and climate change and fuel consumption than any other entity. And that's just one, one little example. Our efforts so far, uh, we're actually going to be launching World Beyond War on the International Day of Peace this year. That's September 21st, 2014. Right now, there is a website, which you mentioned, worldbeyondwar.org. We are in the process now of just sort of building our base of people, outreaching to folks, uh, letting them know what the idea is, and to get everybody on one page. And as the outreach coordinator for World Beyond War, I have been so encouraged by uh, when I'm doing the research on finding organizations that we might want to outreach to, of finding the hundreds and, and, and really thousands of organizations who are all trying to do the same thing. But right now, everybody is doing good work, but we're not coordinated. We're not doing massive, collective, coordinated actions that could really have some impact. So can you imagine if we could get significant numbers of people all over the world to participate in a coordinated action, uh, you know, a, a one-day strike or, a, you know, at a certain time, everybody goes to lobby their elected officials, whether they're in the U.S. or another country or, or you know, all kinds of actions that if we harness the potential that's out there, through this collective world beyond war, I think we could be very, very powerful. Uh, but right now we're separate and we're all trying to do the good work. But as in unions, you know, we're so much stronger together. And that's the point of world beyond war is to try to harness the collective potential power of all these groups that want war to be abolished. There are a lot of issues raised and dealt with by the world beyond war, but I'm sure that a number of questions obviously remain. One is, can you really do this all at once? How do you transition from what we have to what we want to head to? Because if all of us good guys put down our weapons, won't the war-entrenched bad guys just come out laughing and shooting? But perhaps an even bigger question is, how can we pull together all of the divergent groups of potential anti-war folks behind this movement. I'm sure you've realized that liberal-leaning folks are among the hardest segments of our society to organize. They make herding cats look obvious. How likely is it that you'll be able to unify folks for this truly wonderful purpose? 
Well, it's a very important question that you raise. And I am certainly not saying that World Beyond War, the steering committee of World Beyond War is going to be making these decisions and saying everybody shall do this on this day. We are hoping to bring together all of these great minds and energy to strategize and to think of ways that we can work in a coordinated effort. We don't have the answers, but we're hoping that if we get people together, we can seek the answers so we can create the answers and develop the systems to actually flex our power. But I know what you're saying. You know, I just came from a, a weekend conference of people who are trying to connect the issues of climate change and poverty and environmental issues and military issues and economic issues and trying to connect the dots and saying, oh, we all need to support each other to further all of our causes because there is a connection between all of them. But the problem is people have a special interest in their own issue and that's what they want to, you know, I, I talked to the same young man I talked to that wanted to be an archaeologist and, and didn't have any money for college. He's 18 years old. He sees no, no options for himself. He's not concerned particularly about stopping wars. His concern is about having a place, a clean, dry place to sleep at night so his the hierarchy of needs thing, you know, when, when those aren't being met, you can't focus on something that seems abstract to you. You know, people dying in Pakistan is really, he can't, he doesn't have the time or energy to worry about that because his own personal needs aren't being met. So even though I tried to explain to him, you know, if we took the money that we are pouring into the war machine and put it into housing and job training and health care, we could have everything we want and need. So it's just a matter of priorities. We're not a bankrupt country. We have plenty of money. We're just putting it in the wrong place. So, you know, I don't know if you really got that or not, but that's, I think, key is to helping people understand that these issues are connected. And we're hoping that through World Beyond War, we will have people involved that are from these different communities, but we'll see that war is something that we can agree on and that if we could end war, it would help all these other areas in significant ways. An important aspect of this Spirit in Action program is to draw on the religious or spiritual insights and motivations of my guests, both the positive and the negative experiences, to make them visible to our listeners. I figure that any idea or work that transcends very narrow self-interest is what I would call spiritual. So I'd like to know what your religious spiritual past or present are. Where did your ideas and beliefs come from, and what role do they play in your advocacy? I'm not sure I'm going to give you the answer you were expecting or the answer you might want. I consider myself an atheist. I'm a member of the local Unitarian Fellowship. I participate to some extent in the work of the Unitarian Fellowship in my peace activism and justice activism, but I don't know. I don't label it as spiritual. For me, it, it's just, I, I don't know, maybe I shy away from that term because I've never really believed in God. I was not brought up in a church. I went, I went to, oh gosh, when I was really small, like kindergarten age, I remember going to Sunday school in some Christian's church. I don't even remember what denomination. And then when I was older, you know, 12 or 13 or something, my family went to a UU fellowship in Kansas City. 
But then I didn't go again anywhere until I came here to Corvallis and I joined the UU Fellowship here. But, uh, you know, so to me, it's just, it's a matter of right and wrong and humanity and fairness and things that I get outraged over. You know, the things that touch me, and, and maybe you can call that spiritual, I, I, to me, I'm not particularly comfortable with that. That's just not the way I identify myself. But it's just a matter of fairness and what is right and what is wrong. So I try my best to dedicate my life now to doing what I think is right and what creates a better world. So I don't really label it as, as spiritual. I don't really see it as having roots in spiritualism or some aspect of religion. Hey, I'm fine with whatever you do or don't call yourself religiously or spiritually. Some of my best friends call themselves atheists. (laughs) I do think that the proof, though, is in the pudding. And the great work I see you doing is the most important thing I need to see. And from that good fruit, I know that the tree that bears it is a good one. And I just want to know what your fertilizer is. But I did want to ask you a couple other things about World Beyond War. In casting about, I came upon some pictures posted via World Beyond War. I've got a link to them on northernspiritradio.org. And those pictures were, to say the least, graphic. I think that one of the things that aroused opposition to the Vietnam War was that we were seeing nightly news pictures and videos of what was happening there. But mostly, Afghanistan and Iraq have been less visible to us. Why do you include such gruesome pictures on the web? Well, you know, I think that pictures are so powerful. When we went to Pakistan, we had big posters made of the children who'd been killed in Pakistan. And you cannot look at that and not be moved. It's just like, you know, the boots, they had that effect on me because they represented humans and I was able to make the connection between the boot and the human. But when you actually see the pictures of a human, you can't deny it. It's in your face and it does affect you. And I think that the American media, which censors these kinds of things because oh, nobody wants to see that or it upsets people, that's exactly why we need to see it. And that's exactly why we need to talk about these things. I remember in not that long ago, a few months ago, when the United States was contemplating bombing Syria. Because, and I heard Debbie Wasserman Schultz, a a congresswoman from Florida, say that she just could not get out of her mind the picture that she had seen of dead Syrian children who were lined up and they were swathed in white cloth, but they they had been killed purportedly by the Assad regime. And she just couldn't get that picture out of her mind. And so that was the reason she was advocating that we bomb Syria. I just wish Debbie Wasserman Schultz would look at some pictures of dead children the United States has killed, and there are thousands of them, but we never see those pictures because we don't want to know. We don't even acknowledge that we've killed. You know, the United States doesn't even keep track of the number of civilians that we kill anymore. General Tommy Franks very famously said, we don't do body counts. During the Vietnam War, that was something that was considered to be a measure of our success. And it was on the news every night, how many people we killed. And that obviously we're winning because we were killing more than we were dying. But now we don't talk about the number of civilians we killed. We call them collateral damage. And oh, gosh, we just can't avoid that. 
but that's just preposterous. Yes, you can avoid killing innocent people. If you avoid killing people, that's the bottom line. So, you know, to say, well, well, we're going after insurgents or we're going after terrorists or we're going after extremists. They have all these different labels that they call the, quote, the bad guys. But the fact is that none of those people have ever been proven to do anything that would merit execution. You know, even somebody who they said, well, there's a very high level Taliban operative or Al Qaeda operative. Well, we don't know that. We don't know that just being a member of a group is crime enough to warrant execution. And the, the truth is the Geneva Conventions require that charges be brought against someone. It requires evidence be brought against someone. The Geneva Conventions require that if you kill someone, you have to have positive identification that that person is an enemy, and a bona fide enemy. And, you know, we, uh, we this country, is responsible for killing thousands of people in countries we're not even at war with. That's, it's just beyond the pale how we can get away with this. If the United States would just abide by international law, we would be making great strides in, in improving our foreign relations. And uh, I, I don't know, I get, I get really worked up about this because the American, and I started talking about how the American people don't see the truth. The American people don't realize that we are not even a member of the International Criminal Court. We refuse to sign on to that. It's the United States and Israel and Sudan are the only countries that have refused outright to join the International Criminal Court. So we want it both ways. We say, oh, these people need to be brought to justice. But we, we don't say they should be brought to justice through the actual judicial system that's, that's in existence because we want to take care of that ourselves according to our own sense of what's right or wrong or who's good or bad. And that has just got to end. It's just absolutely reprehensible the way we execute foreign policy. You know, Leah, you absolutely inspire me and you exhaust me with all the activism you're doing. I want to touch on one more aspect of your activism, and that is as part of what's called the Green Shadow Cabinet. I see that there are all kinds of well-known or lesser-known names who are part of the group, including Patch Adams and Jill Stein, who was the Green Party presidential candidate in 2012, and Gar Alperwitz, who I've had on Spirit in Action and who impressed me greatly. People can check this out at greenshadowcabinet.us. But why don't you tell us a bit about it? It looks like a, an impressive undertaking. Right. Well, the Green Shadow Cabinet is a project that came about from the folks, uh, Jill Stein and Sherry Honkala, who ran as president and vice president on the Green Party ticket in 2012. And their idea was to create a shadow cabinet to create a kind of a vehicle for dissenting opinion and to create policy statements or position statements about what we would do if we were the secretary of state or the secretary treasurer or the uh, you know secretary of labor. And so the green shadow cabinet is a whole compilation of, of dozens and dozens of people who are experts in their field, who, who work together to draft policy statements about a third option besides the Republican and Democratic option, because we think that neither of those two parties has the best interest of the American people at heart. And so 
our policies and we issue statements. We speak at different groups and, you know, we're part of uh, panel discussions and, and that's what the Green Shadow Cabinet is. So if you go to the website, greenshadowcabinet.us, you'll see um, all kinds of statements and you can get on the newsletter or in the mailing list so that you get uh, weekly updates. And we'd love to get input from other people who think that, you know, they'd like to see us take a stand on this or that or, or their opinions on what we have taken a stand on. That's what it is. As I've said before in this interview, Leah Bolger, you are such a dynamo of energy for such important causes. I kind of wonder what your power source is. Maybe thousands of ever-ready batteries? It definitely blows my mind. I've named a few of the groups you're active with, but in Googling your name, I found what must be almost hundreds of vehicles for your energy. Or or do I over-exaggerate? Well, you are exaggerating a little bit, but you know, I sometimes have to pare down and I, I used to be involved in other things. I used to be on the executive board of my local League of Women Voters. I used to be heavily involved with Planned Parenthood, but you know, there are so many issues and only so many hours in the day, but I am fortunate that I can afford to devote myself to being, I consider myself a full-time activist. This is the work I do now and I don't have children at home. I don't have a job I have to get up for and so I have the luxury of being able to spend my days doing interviews and writing articles and doing presentations and, and all that this, in, this work entails. So it's my privilege to do this kind of work. And I thank you for recognizing it. I, I, there are lots of people out there that do more than I do, though. So this is what I do now, and I'm proud of the work I'm doing. But we need everybody to do however much they can. And not, of course, not everybody can do what I can do, and not everybody can go get arrested in front of Congress. And that's fine. We all just do what we can. So that's what I appeal to people, to do what you can. And even if it seems small to you, it's it's very, very important. We've been speaking with 20-year Navy veteran and recent national president for Vets for Peace, active with World Beyond War, the Green Shadow Cabinet, and oh so much more. Follow links to these groups from NordenSpiritRadio.org. Leah, Thank you so much for your service, both in the military and in the peace movement. You are clearly passionate, thoughtful, and dedicated, putting your life on the line for our country and for all of humanity. It's an honor to know you, and thank you so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Well, thank you so much for contacting me and, and, and for doing the interview. I, I really appreciate it, and, and I'm, I'm pleased to speak with you anytime. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, 